Welcome to the Cedar Creek Church Podcast, where we share stories of life change and inspire you to take a next step in your own faith journey, to discover your purpose, and honor God with your life. Welcome to the Cedar Creek Church Podcast. Today, you'll hear from Pastor Philip and Steve Cooksey as they dig deeper into the biological, social, and spiritual aspects of addiction and recovery. Well, Steve, thank you so much. Uh, we had a great day uh, Sunday just talking about addiction and faith and really appreciate you coming. And now uh, taking some time to be a part of our podcast, we're super honored to have you and uh, just to have some conversations, a little deeper dive into this whole area of addiction and faith and just getting a better understanding of it. And, you know, one of the things that really jumped off the page with me uh, Sunday that you shared is about uh, when we were talking about what to do and what not to do uh, for a, a loved one, a family member who may be struggling with addiction. And we talked a little bit about enabling and codependency. And you said you, you said one of the best things we can do is give our loved ones the gift of consequences. So let's talk a little bit about that. So if we're going to talk a little bit about enabling and codependency, let, let's Let's first say that it's hard not to be an enabler or to be codependent, especially for a parent or a spouse, because we love those people. And so I don't want them to hurt. I don't want them to suffer. I don't want them to be embarrassed. I don't want them to feel shame and guilt. I don't want to feel shame and guilt. So it's easy for me to cover up their actions, but in reality, I'm enabling them to continue their actions because I'm covering them up, helping them by covering them up. So how do we love someone without becoming codependent? Codependent meaning how I feel about myself depends on how well they are doing. And how do I love them without enabling them to continue into destructive habits that they're using. So there, there certainly is a fine line there, requires some prayer, you know, some meditation, yeah. Yeah. and some direct intervention from God. I guess that if I were to say the best way to, to look at this is, we've all heard that expression, I love you to death. And in reality, when it comes to addiction, we can love someone to death because the consequences of addiction or death. That's just the way it is. That's where it will eventually end. It you will. Know? And, you know, that's one of the things that uh, certainly our family struggle with, trying to figure out how to help without hurting. And sometimes helping is hurting. And, and uh, there's so much emotionally invested as a parent in your child, even an adult child. There's so much invested in their success in life, their being healthy, their being in a good place, that sometimes our own emotions can cloud reason, our own ability to reason and think through things. And and for us, one of the probably one of the best gifts in, in our journey in that was uh, a, another couple who loved us and, and loved our family member, and but they weren't so caught up in the emotional tornado of because when you have a loved one that's in active addiction, it's like being in the spin cycle of the dryer. It just, everything, it implodes the family, everything. And so having someone who was a little outside of that, they cared, but they weren't so emotionally tied up in it 
that they could help us think reasonably if we're going to do this or not do this or provide this or not provide that. That was a real gift, and that's part of doing life in community, having people that know you, know your family. And so that that was something that was super helpful for us because you do want to cushion that fall. You do want to, you know, manage their pain. You you don't want them to hurt. And, you know, the reality is we we almost never change until the pain of not changing exceeds the pain it takes to change because change is always painful. And so allowing those consequences to hit uh, is a hard thing to watch happen, but probably essential for someone getting help. Absolutely. So if we look at it from that standpoint, I instead of saying I, I love you to death, let's love them to life. Mm. You know, and that takes some strong will, some courage to be able to confront that loved one. You know, so as long as they are exhibiting good behavior, and and that's where it gets complicated in addiction. Oh yeah, I did great this week. Mm. But it was only a week. I, I need to hold you accountable to continue doing those things. Um, I need to keep you on that straight and narrow. If if that person starts experiencing consequences, rather than covering those up, we need to give them that gift of consequence. And I use the analogy uh, Sunday of the kid that plays on the baseball team and wins the most valuable player. And they get to go up on stage and pick up that trophy. And we want them to experience that glory and all those good feelings that come with that. And we support that. We let them feel those feelings. And in a like manner, the consequences of addiction, which are exactly the opposite, in trouble with the law, having relationship problems, work problems, health issues. We need to let them experience those consequences and feel those feelings. Because like you said, pain is the greatest motivator. Yeah, it's what brings about change for pretty much all of us. And so, you know, the other thing I've had parents say to me, you know, well, if we don't do this, provide this, get their they could end up dead. They could end up on the street. And and my answer has been, yes, they could and they may. We don't know what choices they'll make if we, you know, allow them to feel the consequences of their choices. We don't know where that will go, but it's almost a guarantee if we keep doing what we're doing, they will die because the end result of addiction is ultimately Death, And so, I mean, I empathize. I've been right there. And it is not an easy thing to do. And I would say it is not something that anybody should try to do alone, should try to handle that. So whether it's your child or your spouse, man, get help. I know Terry with the Overflow Foundation, she always recommends when parents or spouses reach out to her to try to get help for their loved one, to get them in treatment. She always says to them, "You, you can't control them. The best thing you can do for them is get yourself in a healthy place. You need to be in counseling. You need to be in a codependency support group or Al-Anon or Naranon. You can only control you. And so you, I'm assuming you've seen that. Absolutely. The codependent self-help groups, Al-Anon, Naranon, mm-hmm. and there are others, 
are so essential for people to get involved with because they need to talk to other families and realize that they're not the only ones. We're not the only family. I heard someone say not long ago that when we have those in addiction, it's going to end one way or another. Now, if that end is in recovery and changing their lives, it can either start now or three or five years down the road, but it's going to start. So if we want to help it start sooner rather than later, if we look at it from this standpoint, when it becomes an issue between a chemical and the human body, the chemical will win every time. Take sulfuric acid and pour it on concrete. You, you'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. You know. So if we know that that chemical is going to win, rather than being codependent, rather than being enabling, more importantly, to allow that process to take much longer than it has to take. In my own story, if my mom had not loved me so much, I would have probably found recovery a lot sooner. You know, because I'm telling you. I'm scared of going to jail. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know? So if we allow that person to experience those consequences, that can be the greatest motivator to encourage them to start making positive changes in their life. While that's happening, it's breaking our hearts as parents or spouses. It is literally tearing us apart. It's like their life is on fire and we're trying to put it out. What we need to do is let them start putting out the fire in their own life while we receive the support and the love and the help that we need from those other safe people that are not so emotionally vested in our situation that can help us get through this and really with just love and support. I think another thing that someone shared with us that I thought was really powerful is that every time you do for someone what they can and should do for themselves, you are subtly communicating to them that I don't believe that you can do it, that I don't have confidence that you can take that next step or that you can manage your life or that you can get help. And, and that was real eye-opening for me, Steve. It was like, yeah, it's, it's a subtle, subliminal message, but I think it comes through sometimes. They lose confidence in themselves. Well, you know, people are doing these things for me because they don't think. I can. And I'd never thought of it that way. Well, either it communicates the message, I, I don't think that you can do that, or it communicates, it's okay for you to continue in your behavior because I'm going to take care of things yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So it reinforces bad behavior. That's, that is good stuff. Now, you talked just a little bit about, you know, the, the chemistry involved, and we touched on this, the brain chemistry, and particularly the midbrain. Can you just kind of unpack a little bit for us that, for those of us who are uh, not medical folks or not trained addiction counselors, just talk a little bit about what uh, addiction, alcohol and other drugs, what do they do to the brain and how is it then tied in with the addiction process. Okay, so I'd like to begin this by saying addiction is not a moral issue, a character, integrity. It does become a biological issue. I heard something funny, and I'm going to say it. I was talking with one of uh, my peers, my director, actually, And he was telling me about a guy way back in the day, Father Martin. Father Martin was one of the innovators between the church and recovery. 
And Father Martin was this great individual and had these wonderful videos that he would put together. And at some point in time, he was at a, a conference in Atlanta. And this was back many years ago when Nancy Reagan had come up with the Just Say No campaign. Yeah. You know, just say no. And they were in the wings of the stage, and they were talking amongst themselves, and he made the comment. He said, yeah, you know, telling an addict to just say no doesn't work. He said, try doing that the next time you have diarrhea. Mm. Just say yeah. no. Yeah. You know? And for the addict, yeah. that biological process is the same. So once we've crossed that line, we go through those phases of addiction. I get introduced to the addiction. I become socially addicted, the pathway to the party, psychologically addicted. I feel like I perform better. I need this. And after we're there for several years, we've depleted our neurotransmitters to the point that it tricks the brain into thinking, I've got to have this drink or drug to live. I must have it. How does that process happen? So let's start with how a, a drink or a drug works. And I, I put the substance into my body. It's absorbed into my bloodstream. It circles around to my brain. And what it does is it manipulates the brain to produce masses, massive amounts of neurotransmitters way in excess of what God designed it to do. We can break that process down a little bit by... Using the analogy, my, my favorite place back home is a little place called the Shady Lane. You go get a chili dog and a shake and a fried apple pie. Well, that's great. It goes in my belly, goes in my bloodstream, signals my midbrain, this wonderful part of the brain that God gave us to keep us alive. The midbrain has one job, our survival instincts. And it's closely enmeshed in a complicated system with the limbic system of the brain that produces feelings and emotions. And this is where psychiatrists and doctors roll their eyes because I'm giving you a real <laughs> redneck version of the biology of addiction, you know. So what happens is that chili dog is good to me. And my brain says, hey, we like chili dogs. Give him some dopamine. And I feel good. You know, and about 30 minutes later, my stomach says, hey, we need to digest this food. So let's give him a little serotonin and calm down. And dopamine's my feel-good chemical. Serotonin's my relaxing sleep chemical. And, you know, that's after that big lunch when you want to go back to the office and go to sleep on the sofa and you get in trouble yeah. with your boss. Yeah. You know? <laughs> However, alcohol and drugs are manipulating that same system. So the good news is that we have that system to control our life. It's in control of our survival appetites. I need to feel hungry because I need to eat to survive. I need to be thirsty. I need to drink to survive. That part of the brain is so powerful that it's the reason a drowning man drowns. You can hold a person's head underwater long enough, they will take a breath, even when they know it's going to be a lung full of water and they are going to die. That's how powerful the midbrain is. So why, while it reacts the way it did to my food, when I take some methamphetamine or cocaine or alcohol, and it gets in my bloodstream, and it goes to that same part of the brain, and it manipulates it to produce 40, 50 times more of the neurotransmitter, and I get that rush of feel-good feeling. And it's so good. That dopamine rush is so good 
that it tells my brain, this is good, and this is good for me. I need to do more of this. And so I go and do some more, and I go and do some more. And when God designed that part of our brain, he meant it for good. So we have that scripture where he said, what Satan meant for evil, God turned to good. Mm -hmm. I can guarantee you that what God meant for good, Satan will try to twist and mean for evil. And that part of our brain that produces those neurotransmitters gets overworked. We're using them up faster than the body can replenish them. And when that level, our gas tank gets low, it starts signaling, the midbrain starts signaling our neocortex, hey, we don't feel good. We need some dopamine. Well, our body only knows how to produce dopamine now or the other neurotransmitters, whatever they may be, and there are a lot of neurotransmitters. (laughs) It only knows how to produce them when they are chemically manipulated. So I've got to have the chemical to even feel normal again. And what the midbrain says, metaphorically, to the neocortex is, hey, we don't feel good, we need some dopamine. I can't sleep, you know, I, I need some serotonin. And the neocortex think, signals back, well, we ain't got no dopamine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we ain't got no serotonin. And the midbrain says, well, you need to go get some. And the neocortex says, well, how do we do that? Oh, you know how to do it. Go get some drugs or some alcohol. And the neocortex signals back, well, we ain't got no money. And that's when the midbrain says, but you know how to get some. And that's when the addict and the alcoholic does those things that they said they'd never do. It does those things they don't want to do. Because as we spoke earlier, you know, nobody wants to be an addict or an alcoholic, a bad husband, a bad father, a bad child. Mm -hmm. And when that signal gets to be so overpowering, because, again, that midbrain is so powerful. We've already talked about how powerful it is. The addict has no choice. They've lost the choice, the power of choice. And they do those things that they said They'd never do. And the only way we know to recover from that at this point is abstinence. We need to take a break. We need to go into treatment. And we need to start rebuilding the body, that amazing, amazing body that God created for us. is so resilient. It starts rebuilding those neurotransmitters, refilling those reservoirs that God placed in our brain that hold those neurotransmitters. And as they rebuild and refill, we also want to be in treatment where we can start rethinking. So while living in the life of addiction, I'm thinking addictive thoughts. I'm manipulating people. You know, I'm selfish. I'm thinking about getting a drink or a drug and getting more of the drink and drug. I'm thinking about all those behaviors we see all addicts do. But once I get into recovery and I start experiencing the feelings I will experience from neurotransmitters being placed in my body again that are not chemically manipulated, I start feeling good again. And I change my thought process. I start thinking about God. I start thinking about recovery. I start thinking about others. I start seeking forgiveness. I'm developing new neural pathways. So that's the 
process of recovery. That's what takes us so long. We took quite a bit of time as an addict or a hard drinker, let's say, developing neural pathways influenced by addictive thoughts and high-risk behavior. Now we are developing new neural pathways, concentrating on the good things in life, a new relationship with God, a new relationship with people, being responsible, getting a job, taking care of the things we should have been taking care of all the time. And it takes some years to do that. So that's why we like to see people in long-term recovery. Yeah, long-term because it takes a while. to restore. That damage doesn't get fixed in a matter of weeks. You know, it takes a long time. But I love what you said, God's beautiful plan, His redemptive plan uh, to restore the years that the locusts had eaten away. But it, it takes time. We don't get there overnight, and we don't get well and healthy overnight. It is a, it is a long journey, but, man, it's a worthwhile journey. And it's amazing. Uh, Mel and I talk all the time about how God has this wonderful sense of humor. And this morning's service, uh, or Sunday's service, mm-hmm. the— Songs that we sang, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. And I think about that with my own story and where I was, who I had become in addiction. And today, God lets me do what I'm passionate about. I get to work with two or three hundred men a year and have been able to do that for years. And now I'm getting the opportunity to work with two or three hundred counselors a year who each one gets to work with two or three hundred men a year. And those are the things that God's restoration, giving back what the locust stole, that we can recognize. And I see that in so many others. It's not that I'm a standout. There are so many in recovery doing the work that the Lord has laid out for them to do. That's awesome. So. You know, a lot of what you shared uh, about the, the chemistry and the midbrain, uh, our good friend, our mutual good friend, Dallas Bennett, has written a phenomenal little book uh, called uh, The Midbrain and the Beast. Absolutely. And so we're going to put a link to that on Amazon in the show notes. So if you'd like a, uh, just to understand that even better, that is a great resource. So we'll make that available in the show notes so people can get that book and uh, read it if they want to know more about that. So uh, just one last thing. So what would you want to say today to someone who is in active addiction, struggling, and really, really doubting that they could ever have hope or ever be restored? What would you say to them? Do not believe the lie that you cannot be restored. I was the worst of these. That's what Paul said. <laughs> you know, that Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I was the chief sinner. I, I would argue with Paul about that. <laughs> <laughs> he may not have had one on me. I don't know. There is hope. So what I would say to you is this. You cannot do it alone. Quit telling yourself every Monday morning, I'm not going to do this anymore and be right back where you were on Friday afternoon. Seek help. Find a safe place, a person you can trust, and start sharing what's going on in your life. Humble yourself before God. Ask for help. That's the hardest thing any person with an alcohol or drug problem has ever done, is ask for help. But once it's done, 
the hard part's over. Now, there's more work to be done, and I'm not saying it's easy, but it's there, and it's available. And in today's world, we have so many opportunities for recovery. We have Celebrate Recovery at the church, uh, the 12 steps and the eight biblical principles. But listen, AA saved my life. AA brought me to God. CR saved my soul. You know, so it's that increasing work, what God can do through these programs, they're there. And everyone likes the underdog. Go to someone and ask for help. They will help you. That is a good word. And we'll put some links to some of these resources. If you want to reach out, we'll put some links in the show notes as well. So, Steve, thank you so much, man. Thank you for coming, spending time with us, being a part of this uh, faith in the mental health journey. You are a gift to the kingdom of God. You're a gift to the Lee family. You've been a gift to the Cedar Creek Church family, and we're grateful for you. So thank you so much, and uh, maybe we'll continue this conversation sometime in the near future. But God bless you. Thanks, everybody, for joining us, and I hope you have a great week. Next week on the Cedar Creek Church Podcast, we have a special guest joining us, author and speaker Sarah J. Robinson. She and Terry Lee will help us understand ministering to those who struggle. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday.